What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 7 of Peter Pan by J. M. Barry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 The Home Under the Ground. One of the first things Peter did next day was to measure Wendy and John and Michael for hollow trees. Hook, you remember, had sneered at the boys for thinking they needed a tree apiece. But this was ignorance for unless your tree fitted you it was difficult to go up and down, and no two boys were quite the same size. Once you fitted, you drew in your breath at the top, and down you went at exactly the right speed, while to ascend you drew in and let out alternately, and so wriggled up. Of course, when you have mastered the action, you are able to do these things without thinking of them, and nothing can be more graceful. But you simply must fit, and Peter measures you for the tree as carefully as for a suit of clothes, the only difference being that the clothes are made to fit you, while you have to be made to fit the tree. Usually it is done quite easily, as by your wearing too many garments or too few. But if you are bumpy in awkward places, or the only available tree is an odd shape, Peter does some things to you, and after that you fit. Once you fit, great care must be taken to go on fitting, and this, as Wendy was to discover to her delight, keeps a whole family in perfect condition. Wendy and Michael fitted their trees at the first try, but John had to be altered a little. After a few days' practice they could go up and down as gaily as buckets in a well, and how ardently they grew to love their home under the ground, especially Wendy. It consisted of one large room, as all houses should do, with a floor in which you could dig if you wanted to go fishing, and in this floor grew stout mushrooms of a charming color which were used as stools. A never-tree tried hard to grow in the center of the room, but every morning they sawed the trunk through level with the floor. By tea-time it was always about two feet high, and then they put a door on top of it the hole thus becoming a table. As soon as they cleared away they sawed off the trunk again, and thus there was more room to play. There was an enormous fireplace which was in almost any part of the room where you cared to light it, and across this Wendy stretched strings made of fiber from which she suspended her washing. The bed was tilted against the wall by day and let down at six-thirty when it filled nearly half the room, and all the boys slept in it, except Michael, lying like sardines in a tin. There were strict rules against turning round until one gave the signal, when all turned at once. Michael should have used it also, but Wendy would have a baby, and he was the littlest and you know what women are, and the short and long of it is that he was hung up in a basket. It was rough and simple, and not unlike what baby bears would have made of an underground house in the same circumstances, 
but there was one recess in the wall, no larger than a birdcage, which was the private apartment of Tinkerbell. It could be shut off from the rest of the house by a tiny curtain which Tink, who was most fastidious, always kept drawn when dressing or undressing. No woman, however large, could have had a more exquisite boudoir and bedchamber combined. The couch, as she always called it, was a genuine Queen Mab, with club legs, and she varied the bedspreads according to what fruit blossom was in season. Her mirror was a Puss in Boots, of which there are now only three unchipped known to fairy dealers. The washstand was pie-crust and reversible, the chest of drawers an authentic charming the sixth, and the carpet and rugs the best the early period of Marjorie and Robin. There was a chandelier from Tiddlywinks for the look of the thing, but of course she lit the residence herself. Tink was very contemptuous of the rest of the house, as indeed was perhaps inevitable, and her chamber, though beautiful, looked rather conceited, having the appearance of a nose permanently turned up. I suppose it was all especially entrancing to Wendy, because those rampageous boys of hers gave her so much to do. Really, there were whole weeks when, except perhaps with a stocking in the evening, she was never above ground. The cooking, I can tell you, kept her nose to the pot, and even if there was nothing in it, even if there was no pot, she had to keep watching that it came a-boil just the same. You never exactly knew whether there would be a real meal or just a make-believe. It all depended upon Peter's whim. He could eat, really eat, if it was part of a game. But he could not stodge just to feel stodgy, which is what most children like better than anything else, the next best thing being to talk about it. Make-believe was so real to him that during a meal of it you could see him getting rounder. Of course it was trying, but you simply had to follow his lead, and if you could prove to him that you were getting loose for your tree, he let you stodge. Wendy's favorite time for sewing and darning was after they had all gone to bed. Then, as she expressed it, she had a breathing time for herself, and she occupied it in making new things for them and putting double pieces on the knees, for they were all most frightfully hard on the knees. When she sat down to a basketful of their stockings, every heel with a hole in it, she would fling up her arms and exclaim, "'Oh, dear, I am sure I sometimes think spinsters are to be envied.' Her face beamed when she exclaimed this. "'You remember about her pet wolf? Well, it very soon discovered that she had come to the island, and it found her out, and they just ran into each other's arms. After that it followed her about everywhere.' As time wore on, did she think much about the beloved parents she had left behind her? This is a difficult question, because it is quite impossible to say how time does wear on in the Neverland, where it is calculated by moons and suns, and there are ever so many more of them than on the mainland. But I am afraid that Wendy did not really worry about her father and mother. She was absolutely confident that they would always keep the window open for her to fly back by, and this gave her complete ease of mind. What did disturb her at times was that John remembered his parents vaguely only as people he had once known, while Michael was quite willing to believe that she was really his mother. These things scared her a little, and nobly anxious to do her duty, she tried to fix the old life in their minds by setting them examination papers on it, as like as possible to the ones she used to do at school. The other boys thought this awfully interesting, and insisted on joining, and they made slates for themselves and sat round the table, writing and thinking hard about the questions she had written on another slate and passed round. They were the most ordinary questions. What was the color of mother's eyes? Which was taller, father or mother? Was mother blonde or brunette? Answer all three questions if possible. 
A. Write an essay of not less than forty words on how I spent my last holidays, or the characters of father and mother compared. Only one of these to be attempted. Or 1. Describe mother's laugh. 2. Describe father's laugh. 3. Describe mother's party dress. 4. Describe the kennel and its inmate. They were just everyday questions like these, and when you could not answer them, you were told to make a cross, and it was really dreadful what a number of crosses even John made. Of course, the only boy who replied to every question was slightly, and no one could have been more hopeful of coming out first. But his answers were perfectly ridiculous, and he really came out last, a melancholy thing. Peter did not compete. For one thing, he despised all mothers except Wendy, and for another, he was the only boy on the island who could neither write nor spell, not the smallest word. He was above all that sort of thing. By the way, the questions were all written in the past tense. What was the color of mother's eyes, and so on? Wendy, you see, had been forgetting, too. Adventures, of course, as we shall see, were of daily occurrence. But about this time Peter invented, with Wendy's help, a new game that fascinated him enormously, until he suddenly had no more interest in it, which, as you have been told, was what always happened with his games. It consisted in pretending not to have adventures, in doing the sort of thing John and Michael had been doing all their lives, sitting on stools, flinging balls in the air, pushing each other, going out for walks, and coming back without having killed so much as a grizzly. To see Peter doing nothing on a stool was a great sight. He could not help looking solemn at such times. To sit still seemed to him such a comic thing to do. He boasted that he had gone walking for the good of his health. For several sons these were the most novel of all adventures to him, and John and Michael had to pretend to be delighted also, otherwise he would have treated them severely. He often went out alone, and when he came back you were never absolutely certain whether he had had an adventure or not. He might have forgotten it so completely that he said nothing about it and then when you went out you found the body. And on the other hand he might say a great deal about it, and yet you could not find the body. Sometimes he came home with his head bandaged, and then Wendy cooed over him and bathed it in lukewarm water, while he told a dazzling tale. But she was never quite sure, you know. There were, however, many adventures which she knew to be true, because she was in them herself, and there were still more that were at least partly true, for the other boys were in them and said they were wholly true. To describe them all would require a book as large as an English-Latin-Latin-English dictionary, and the most we can do is to give one as a specimen of an average hour on the island. The difficulty is which one to choose. Should we take the brush with the red skins at slightly gulch? It was a sanguinary affair, and especially interesting as showing one of Peter's peculiarities, which was that, in the middle of a fight, he would suddenly change sides. At the gulch, when victory was still in the balance, sometimes leaning this way and sometimes that, he called out, "'I'm a redskin today. What are you, Tootles?' And Tootles answered, Redskin, what are you, Nibs? And Nibs said, Redskin, what are you, twin? And so on. And they were all redskins, and of course this would have ended the fight had not the real redskins, fascinated by Peter's methods, agreed to be lost boys for that once, and so at it they all went again more fiercely than ever. The extraordinary upshot of this adventure was but we have not decided yet that this is the adventure we are to narrate. Perhaps a better one would be the night attack by the Redskins on the house underground, when several of them stuck in the hollow trees and had to be pulled out like corks. Or we might tell how Peter saved Tiger Lily's life in the Mermaid's Lagoon, 
and so made her his ally. Or we could tell of that cake of the pirates, cooked so that the boys might eat it and perish, and how they placed it in one cunning spot after another, but always Wendy snatched it from the hands of her children, so that in time it lost its succulence, and became as hard as a stone, and was used as a missile, and Hook fell over it in the dark. Or suppose we tell of the birds that were Peter's friends, particularly of the Neverbird, that built in a tree overhanging the lagoon, and how the nest fell into the water, and still the bird sat on her eggs, and Peter gave orders that she was not to be disturbed. That is a pretty story, and the end shows how grateful a bird can be. But if we tell it, we must also tell the whole adventure of the lagoon, which would of course be telling two adventures rather than just one. A shorter adventure, and quite as exciting, was Tinkerbell's attempt, with the help of some street fairies, to have the sleeping Wendy conveyed on a great floating leaf to the mainland. Fortunately the leaf gave way, and Wendy woke, thinking it was bath time, and swam back. Or again we might choose Peter's defiance of the lines, when he drew a circle round him on the ground with an arrow and dared them to cross it. And, though he waited for hours with the other boys and Wendy, looking on breathlessly from trees, not one of them dared to accept his challenge. Which of these adventures shall we choose? The best way will be to toss for it. I have tossed, and the lagoon has won. This almost makes one wish that the gulch or the cake or Tink's leaf had won. Of course I could do it again, and make it best out of three. However, perhaps fairest to stick to the lagoon. End of chapter 7Chapter 8 of Peter Pan by J. M. Barry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 The Mermaid's Lagoon. If you shut your eyes and are a lucky one, you may see at times a shapeless pool of lovely pale colors suspended in the darkness. Then, if you squeeze your eyes tighter, the pool begins to take shape, and the colors become so vivid that with another squeeze they must go on fire. But just before they go on fire you see the lagoon. This is the nearest you ever get to it on the mainland. Just one heavenly moment, if there could be two moments, you might see the surf and hear the mermaids singing. The children often spent long summer days on this lagoon, swimming or floating most of the time playing the mermaid games in the water and so forth. You must not think from this that the mermaids were on friendly terms with them. On the contrary, it was among Wendy's lasting regrets that all the time she was on the island she never had a civil word from one of them. When she stole softly to the edge of the lagoon she might see them by the score, especially on Marooner's Rock, where they loved to bask, combing out their hair in a lazy way that quite irritated her. Or she might even swim, on tiptoe as it were, to within a yard of them. But then they saw her and dived, probably splashing her with their tails, not by accident, but intentionally. They treated all the boys in the same way, except, of course, Peter, who chatted with them on Marooner's Rock by the hour, and sat on their tails when they got cheeky. He gave Wendy one of their combs. The most haunting time at which to see them is at the turn of the moon, when they utter strange wailing cries. But the lagoon is dangerous for mortals then, and until the evening of which we have now to tell, Wendy had never seen the lagoon by moonlight, less from fear, for of course Peter would have accompanied her, than because she had strict rules about everyone being in bed by seven. She was often at the lagoon, however, on sunny days after rain, when the mermaids came up in extraordinary numbers to play with their bubbles. The bubbles of many colors, made in rainbow water, they treat as balls, hitting them gaily from one to another with their tails, and trying to keep them in the rainbow till they burst. The goals are at each end of the rainbow, 
and the keepers only are allowed to use their hands. Sometimes a dozen of these games will be going on in the lagoon at a time, and it is quite a pretty sight. But the moment the children tried to join in, they had to play by themselves, for the mermaids immediately disappeared. Nevertheless, we have proof that they secretly watched the interlopers and were not above taking an idea from them, for John introduced a new way of hitting the bubble with his head instead of the hand, and the mermaids adopted it. This is the one mark that John has left on the Neverland. It must also have been rather pretty to see the children resting on a rock for half an hour after their midday meal. Wendy insisted on their doing this, and it had to be a real rest, even though the meal was make-believe. So they lay there in the sun, and their bodies glistened in it, while she sat beside them and looked important. It was one such day, and they were all on Maruna's rock. The rock was not much larger than their great bed, but of course they all knew how to not take up much room, and they were dozing, or at least lying with their eyes shut, and pinching occasionally when they thought Wendy was not looking. She was very busy stitching. While she stitched, a change came to the lagoon. Little shivers ran over it, and the sun went away and shadows stole across the water, turning it cold. Wendy could no longer see to thread her needle, and when she looked up, the lagoon that had always hitherto been such a laughing place seemed formidable and unfriendly. It was not, she knew, that night had come, but something as dark as night had come. No worse than that. It had not come, but it had sent that shiver through the sea to say that it was coming. What was it? There crowded upon her all the stories she had been told of Marooner's Rock, so called, because evil captains put sailors on it and left them there to drown. They drown when the tide rises, for then it is submerged. Of course she should have roused the children at once, not merely because of the unknown that was stalking toward them, but because it was no longer good for them to sleep on a rock grown chilly. But she was a young mother, and she did not know this. She thought how simply you must stick to your rule about half an hour after the midday meal. So, though fear was upon her, and she longed to hear male voices, she could not waken them. Even when she heard the sound of muffled oars, though her heart was in her mouth, she did not waken them. She stood over them to let them have their sleep out. Was it not brave of Wendy? It was well for those boys, then, that there was one among them who could sniff danger even in his sleep. Peter sprang erect, as wide awake at once as a dog, and with one warning cry he roused the others. He stood motionless, one hand to his ear. "'Pirates!' he cried. The others came closer to him. A strange smile was playing about his face, and Wendy saw it and shuddered. While that smile was on his face, no one dared address him. All they could do was to stand ready to obey. The order came sharp and incisive. Dive! There was a gleam of legs, and instantly the lagoon seemed deserted. Marooner's rock stood alone in the forbidding waters as if it were itself marooned. The boat drew nearer. It was the pirate dinghy with three figures in her, Smee and Starkey, and a third, a captive, no other than Tiger Lily. Her hands and ankles were tied, and she knew what was to be her fate. She was to be left on the rock to perish, an end to one of her race more terrible than death by fire or torture, for is it not written in the book of the tribe that there is no path through water to the happy hunting ground? Yet her face was impassive. She was the daughter of a chief. She must die as a chief's daughter. It is enough. They had caught her boarding the pirate ship with a knife in her mouth. No watch was kept on the ship, it being Hook's boast that the wind of his name guarded the ship for a mile around. Now her fate 
would help to guard it also. One more whale would go to the round in that wind by night. In the gloom they had brought with them, the two pirates did not see the rock till they crashed into it. "'Luff, you lubber!' cried an Irish voice that was Smee's. "'Here's the rock. Now then, what we have to do is to hoist the redskin onto it and leave her here to drown.' It was the work of one brutal moment to land the beautiful girl on the rock. She was too proud to offer a vain resistance. Quite near the rock, but out of sight, two heads were bobbing up and down, Peter's and Wendy's. Wendy was crying, for it was the first tragedy that she had seen. Peter had seen many tragedies, but he had forgotten them all. He was less sorry than Wendy for Tiger Lily. It was two against one that angered him, and he meant to save her. An easy way would have been to wait until the pirates had gone, but he was never one to choose the easy way. There was almost nothing he could not do, and now he imitated the voice of Hook. "'Ahoy there, you lubbers!' he called. It was a marvelous imitation. "'The captain!' said the pirates, staring at each other in surprise. "'He must be swimming out to us,' Starkey said, when they had looked for him in vain. "'We are putting the redskin on the rock,' Smee called out. "'Set her free!' came the astonishing answer. "'Free?' "'Yes. Cut her bonds and let her go.' "'But, Captain—' "'At once, do you hear?' cried Peter, or I'll plunge my hook in you. This is queer, Smee gasped. Better do what the captain orders, said Starkey nervously. Aye, aye, Smee said, and he cut Tiger Lily's cords. At once, like an eel, she slid between Starkey's legs into the water. Of course, Wendy was very elated over Peter's cleverness. But she knew that he would be elated also, and very likely to crow and thus betray himself. So at once her hand went out to cover his mouth. But it was stayed even in the act, for— Boat ahoy! rang over the lagoon in Hook's voice. And this time it was not Peter who had spoken. Peter may have been about to crow, but his face puckered in a whistle of surprise instead. Boat ahoy! Again came the voice. Now Wendy understood. The real hook was also in the water. He was swimming to the boat, and as his men showed a light to guide him, he had soon reached them. In the light of the lantern Wendy saw his hook grip the boat's side. She saw his evil swarthy face as he rose dripping from the water and, quaking, she would have liked to swim away, but Peter would not budge. He was tingling with life, and also top-heavy with conceit. "'Am I not a wonder? Oh, I am a wonder!' he whispered to her. And though she thought so also, she was really glad for the sake of his reputation that no one heard him except herself. He signed to her to listen. The two pirates were very curious to know what had brought their captain to them, but he sat with his head on his hook in a position of profound melancholy. "'Captain, is all well?' they asked timidly. But he answered with a hollow moan. "'Oh!' "'He sighs,' said Smee. "'He sighs again,' said Starkey. "'And yet a third time he sighs,' said Smee. Then at last he spoke passionately. "'The game's up!' he cried. "'Those boys have found a mother!' Affrighted though she was, Wendy swelled with pride. "'Oh, evil day!' cried Starkey. "'What's a mother?' asked the ignorant Smee. Wendy was so shocked that she exclaimed, "'He doesn't know!' And always after this she felt that if you could have a pet pirate, Smee would be her one. Peter pulled her beneath the water, for Hook had started up, crying, What was that? 
"'I hear nothing,' said Starkey, raising the lantern over the waters. And as the pirates looked they saw a strange sight. It was the nest I have told you of, floating on the lagoon, and the never-bird was sitting on it. "'See,' said Hook in answer to Smee's question, "'that is a mother. What a lesson! The nest must have fallen into the water, but would the mother desert her eggs? No!' There was a break in his voice, as if for a moment he recalled innocent days when—but he brushed away this weakness with his hook. Smee, much impressed, gazed at the bird as the nest was borne past. But the more suspicious Starkey said, "'If she is a mother, perhaps she is hanging about here to help Peter.' Hook winced. "'Aye,' he said, "'that is the fear that haunts me.' He was roused from this dejection by Smee's eager voice. "'Captain,' said Smee, uh, could we not kidnap these boys' mother and make her our mother? It is a princely scheme, cried Hook, and at once it took practical shape in his great brain. We will seize the children and carry them to the boat. The boys we will make walk the plank, and Wendy shall be our mother. Again Wendy forgot herself. Never, she cried and bobbed. What was that? But they could see nothing. They thought it must have been a leaf in the wind. "'Do you agree, my bullies?' asked Hook. "'There is my hand on it,' they both said, "'and here is my hook. Swear!' They all swore. By this time they were on the rock, and suddenly Hook remembered Tiger Lily. "'Where is the redskin?' he demanded abruptly. He had a playful humor at moments, and they thought this was one of the moments. "'That is all right, Captain,' Smee answered complacently. "'We let her go.' "'Let her go?' cried Hook. "'Twas your own orders,' the boatswain faltered. "'You called over the water to us to let her go,' said Starkey. "'Brimstone and gall!' thundered Hook. "'What cozening is going on here?' His face had gone black with rage, but he saw that they believed their words, and he was startled. "'Lads,' he said, shaking a little, "'I gave no such order.' "'It is passing queer,' Smee said, and they all fidgeted uncomfortably. Hook raised his voice, but there was a quiver in it. "'The spirit that haunts this dark lagoon to-night,' he cried, "'dost hear me?' Of course Peter should have kept quiet, but of course he did not. He immediately answered, in Hook's voice, "'Odds, bods, hammer and tongs, I hear you.' In that supreme moment Hook did not blanch, even at the gills, but Smee and Starkey clung to each other in terror. "'Who are you, stranger? Speak!' Hook demanded. "'I am James Hook,' replied the voice, "'captain of the Jolly Roger.' "'You are not, you are not,' Hook cried hoarsely. "'Brimstone and gall,' the voice retorted. "'Say that again, and I'll cast anchor in you.' Hook tried a more ingratiating manner. "'If you are Hook,' he said almost humbly, "'come, tell me who am I?' "'A codfish,' replied the voice. "'Only a codfish.' "'A codfish?' Hook echoed blankly. And it was then, but not till then, that his proud spirit broke. He saw his men draw back from him. "'Have we been captained all this time by a codfish?' they muttered. "'It is lowering to our pride.' They were his dogs snapping at him. But tragic figure though he had become, he scarcely heeded them. Against such fearful evidence it was not their belief in him that he needed, it was his own. He felt his ego slipping from him. "'Don't desert me, bully,' he whispered hoarsely to it. In his dark nature there was a touch of the feminine, as in all the great pirates, and it sometimes gave him intuitions. 
Suddenly he tried the guessing game. Hawk, he called, have you another voice? Now Peter could never resist a game, and he answered blithely in his own voice, I have. And another name? Aye, aye. Uh, vegetable? asked Hook. No. Mineral? No. Animal? Yes. Man? No. This answer rang out scornfully. Boy? Yes. Ordinary boy? No. Wonderful boy? To Wendy's pain, the answer that rang out this time was, Yes. Are you in England? No. Are you here? Yes. Hook was completely puzzled. You ask him some questions, he said to the others, wiping his damp brow. Smee reflected. I can't think of a thing, he said regretfully. Can't guess, can't guess, crowed Peter. Do you give it up? Of course, in his pride he was carrying the game too far, and the miscreants saw their chance. Yes, yes, they answered eagerly. Well, then, he cried, I am Peter Pan. Pan! In a moment Hook was himself again, and Smee and Starkey were his faithful henchmen. Now we have him, Hook shouted. Into the water, Smee. Starkey, mind the boat. Take him dead or alive. He leaped as he spoke, and simultaneously came the gay voice of Peter. Are you ready, boys? Aye, aye, from various parts of the lagoon. Then lamb into the pirates. The fight was short and sharp. First to draw blood was John, who gallantly climbed into the boat and held Starkey. There was fierce struggle, in which the cutlass was torn from the pirate's grasp. He wriggled overboard, and John leapt after him. The dinghy drifted away. Here and there a head bobbed up in the water, and there was a flash of steel followed by a cry or a whoop. In the confusion some struck at their own side. The corkscrew of Smee got Toodles in the fourth rib, but he was himself pinked in turn by Curly. Farther from the rock Storky was pressing slightly in the twins hard. Where all this time was Peter? He was seeking bigger game. The others were all brave boys, and they must not be blamed for backing from the pirate captain. His iron claw made a circle of dead water round him, from which they fled like affrighted fishes. But there was one who did not fear him. There was one prepared to enter that circle. Strangely, it was not in the water that they met. Hook rose to the rock to breathe, and at the same moment Peter scaled it on the opposite side. The rock was slippery as a ball, and they had to crawl rather than climb. Neither knew that the other was coming. Each, feeling for a grip, met the other's arm. In surprise they raised their heads. Their faces were almost touching. So they met. Some of the greatest heroes have confessed that just before they fell to they had a sinking. Had it been so with Peter at that moment, I would admit it. After all, he was the only man that the sea-cook had feared. But Peter had no sinking. He had one feeling only, gladness, and he gnashed his pretty teeth with joy. Quick as thought he snatched the knife from Hook's belt and was about to drive it home when he saw that he was higher up the rock than his foe. It would not have been fighting fair. He gave the pirate a hand to help him up. It was then that Hook bit him. Not the pain of this, but its unfairness was what dazed Peter. It made him quite helpless. He could only stare, horrified. Every child is affected thus the first time he is treated unfairly. All he thinks he has a right to when he comes to you to be yours is fairness. After you have been unfair to him, he will love you again, 
but he will never afterwards be quite the same boy. No one ever gets over the first unfairness. No one except Peter. He often met it, but he always forgot it. I suppose that was the real difference between him and all the rest. So when he met it now it was like the first time, and he could just stare, helpless. Twice the iron hand clawed him. A few moments afterwards the other boys saw Hook in the water, striking wildly for the ship. No elation in the pestilent face now, only white fear, for the crocodile was in dogged pursuit of him. On ordinary occasions the boys would have swum alongside cheering, but now they were uneasy, for they had lost both Peter and Wendy and were scouring the lagoon for them, calling them by name. They found the dinghy and went home in it, shouting, Peter, Wendy, as they went. But no answer came save mocking laughter from the mermaids. They must be swimming back or flying, the boys concluded. They were not very anxious because they had such faith in Peter. They chuckled, or like, because they would be late for bed, and it was all Mother Wendy's fault. When their voices died away there came cold silence over the lagoon and then a feeble cry. Help! Help! Two small figures were beating against the rock. The girl had fainted and lay on the boy's arm. With a last effort Peter pulled her up the rock and then lay down beside her. Even as he also fainted he saw that the water was rising. He knew that they would soon be drowned, but he could do no more. As they lay side by side, a mermaid caught Wendy by the feet and began pulling her softly into the water. Peter, feeling her slip from him, woke with a start and was just in time to draw her back. But he had to tell her the truth. "'We are on the rock, Wendy,' he said. "'But it is growing smaller. Soon the water will be over it.' She did not understand, even now. "'We must go.' she said, almost brightly. Yes, he answered faintly. Shall we swim or fly, Peter? He had to tell her. Do you think you could swim or fly as far as the island, Wendy, without my help? She had to admit that she was too tired. He moaned. What is it? she asked, anxious about him at once. I can't help you, Wendy. Hook wounded me. I can neither fly nor swim. Do you mean we shall both be drowned? Look how the water is rising. They put their hands over their eyes to shut out the sight. They thought there would soon be no more. As they sat thus, something brushed against Peter, as light as a kiss, and stayed there, as if saying timidly, Can I be of any use? It was the tail of a kite which Michael had made some days before. It had torn itself out of his hand and floated away. Michael's kite, Peter said without interest, but next moment he had seized the tail and was pulling the kite toward him. It lifted Michael off the ground, he cried. Why she did not carry you? Both of us. It can't lift two, Michael and Curly tried. Let us draw lots, Wendy said bravely. And you a lady? Never. Already he had tied the tail round her. She clung to him. She refused to go without him, but with a good-bye Wendy he pushed her from the rock. And in a few minutes she was borne out of sight. Peter was alone on the lagoon. The rock was very small now. Soon it would be submerged. Pale rays of light tiptoed across the waters and by and by there was to be heard a sound at once the most musical and the most melancholy in the world, the mermaid's calling to the moon. Peter was not quite like other boys, but he was afraid at last. A tremor ran through him, like a shudder passing over the sea, but on the sea one shudder follows another till there are hundreds of them and Peter felt just the one. Next moment he was standing erect on the rock again, 
with that smile on his face and a drum beating within him. It was saying, To die will be an awfully big adventure. End of chapter 8、Chapter、Nine of Peter Pan by J. M. Barry This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine The Never Bird. The last sound Peter heard before he was quite alone were the mermaids retiring one by one to their bedchambers under the sea. He was too far away to hear their door shut, but every door in the coral caves where they live rings a tiny bell when it opens or closes, as in all the nicest homes on the mainland, and he heard the bells. Steadily the waters rose till they were nibbling at his feet, and to pass the time until they made their final gulp, he watched the only thing on the lagoon. He thought it was a piece of floating paper, perhaps part of the kite, and wondered idly how long it would take to drift ashore. Presently he noticed, as an odd thing, that it was undoubtedly out upon the lagoon with some definite purpose, for it was fighting the tide, and sometimes winning. And when it won, Peter, always sympathetic to the weaker side, could not help clapping. It was such a gallant piece of paper. It was not really a piece of paper. It was the Neverbird making desperate efforts to reach Peter on the nest. By working her wings in a way she had learned since the nest fell into the water, she was able to some extent to guide her strange craft. But by the time Peter recognized her, she was very exhausted. She had come to save him, to give him her nest, though there were eggs in it. I rather wonder at the bird, for though he had been nice to her, he had also sometimes tormented her. I can suppose only that, like Mrs. Darling and the rest of them, she was melted because he had all his first teeth. She called out to him what she had come for, and he called out to her what she was doing there. But of course, neither of them understood the other's language. In fanciful stories, people can talk to the birds freely, and I wish for the moment I could pretend that this were such a story, and say that Peter replied intelligently to the never bird. But truth is best, and I want to tell you only what really happened. Well, not only could they not understand each other, But they forgot their manners. I want you to get into the nest, the bird called, speaking as slowly and distinctly as possible. And then you can drift ashore, but I am too tired to bring it any nearer, so you must try to swim to it. What are you quacking about? Peter answered. Why don't you let the nest drift as usual? I want you, the bird said, and repeated it all over. Then Peter tried slow and distinct. What are you quacking about? And so on. The never bird became irritated. They have very short tempers. You dunder-headed little jay! she screamed. Why don't you do as I tell you? Peter felt that she was calling him names, and at a venture he retorted hotly, So are you. Then, rather curiously, they both snapped out the same remark. Shut up! Shut up! Nevertheless, the bird was determined to save him if she could. And by one last mighty effort, she propelled the nest against the rock. Then up she flew, deserting her eggs so as to make her meaning clear. Then at last he understood, and clutched the nest and waved his thanks to the bird as she fluttered overhead. It was not to receive his thanks, however, that she hung there in the sky. It was not even to watch him get into the nest. It was to see what he did with her eggs. There were two large white eggs, 
and Peter lifted them up and reflected. The bird covered her face with her wings so as not to see the last of them, but she could not help peeping between the feathers. I forget whether I have told you that there was a stave on the rock, driven into it by some buccaneers of long ago to mark the site of buried treasure. The children had discovered the glittering hoard, and when in a mischievous mood used to fling showers of moidores, diamonds, pearls, and pieces of eight to the gulls, who pounced upon them for food and then flew away, raging at the scurvy trick that had been played upon them. The stave was still there, and on it Starkey had hung his hat, a deep tarpaulin, watertight with a broad brim. Peter put the eggs into this hat and set it on the lagoon. It floated beautifully. The Neverbird saw at once what he was up to, and screamed her admiration of him, and alas Peter crowed his agreement with her. Then he got into the nest, reared the stave in it as a mast, and hung up his shirt for a sail. At the same moment the bird fluttered down upon the hat, and once more sat snugly on her eggs. She drifted in one direction, and he was borne off in another, both cheering. Of course, when Peter landed, he beached his bark in a place where the bird would easily find it, but the hat was such a great success that she abandoned the nest. It drifted about till it went to pieces, and often Starkey came to the shore of the lagoon and with many bitter feelings watched the bird sitting on his hat. As we shall not see her again, it may be worth mentioning here that all never-birds now build in that shape of nest, with a broad brim on which the youngsters take an airing. Great were the rejoicings when Peter reached the home under the ground almost as soon as Wendy, who had been carried hither and thither by the kite. Every boy had adventures to tell, but perhaps the biggest adventure of all was that they were several hours late for bed. This so inflamed them that they did various dodgy things to get staying up still longer, such as demanding bandages. But Wendy, though glorying in having them all home again, safe and sound, was scandalized by the lateness of the hour and cried, "'To bed! To bed!' in a voice that had to be obeyed. Next day, however, she was awfully tender and gave out bandages to everyone and they played till bedtime at limping about and carrying their arms in slings. End of chapter 9was that it made the Redskins their friends. Peter had saved Tiger Lily from a dreadful fate, and now there was nothing she and her braves would not do for him. All night they sat above, keeping watch over the home under the ground, and awaiting the big attack by the pirates, which obviously could not be much longer delayed. Even by day they hung about, smoking the pipe of peace and looking almost as if they wanted tidbits to eat. They called Peter the Great White Father, prostrating themselves before him, and he liked this tremendously, so that it was not really good for him. The Great White Father, he would say to them in a very lordly manner as they groveled at his feet, is glad to see the Piccaninny warriors protecting his wigwam from the pirates. Me, Tiger Lily, that lovely creature would reply. Peter Pan save me, me his very nice friend. Me no let pirates hurt him. She was far too pretty to cringe in this way, but Peter thought it his due, and he would answer condescendingly, It is good. Peter Pan has spoken. Always when he said, Peter Pan has spoken, it meant that they must now shut up, and they accepted it humbly in that spirit but they were by no means so respectful to the other boys, whom they looked upon as just ordinary braves. They said how-do to them, and things like that, 
And what annoyed the boys was that Peter seemed to think this was all right. Secretly, Wendy sympathized with them a little, but she was far too loyal a housewife to listen to any complaints against Father. Father knows best, she always said, whatever her private opinion must be. Her private opinion was that the Redskins should not call her a squaw. We have now reached the evening that was to be known among them as the Night of Nights, because of its adventures and their upshot. The day, as if quietly gathering its forces, had been almost uneventful, and now the Redskins in their blankets were at their posts above, while below the children were having their evening meal, all except Peter, who had gone out to get the time. The way you got the time on the island was to find the crocodile and then stay near him till the clock struck. The meal happened to be a make-believe tea, and they all sat around the board guzzling in their greed and really, what with their chatter and recriminations, the noise, as Wendy said, was positively deafening. To be sure, she did not mind the noise, but she simply would not have them grabbing things and then excusing themselves by saying that Toodles had pushed their elbow. There was a fixed rule that they must never hit back at meals, but should refer the matter of dispute to Wendy by raising the right arm politely and saying, I complain of so-and-so. But what usually happened was that they forgot to do this or did it too much. Silence, cried Wendy, when for the twentieth time she had told them that they were not all to speak at once. Is your mug empty, Slightly Darling? Not quite empty, Mummy, Slightly said, after looking into an imaginary mug. He hasn't even begun to drink his milk, Nibs interposed. This was telling, and Slightly seized his chance. I complain of Nibs, he cried promptly. John, however, had held up his hand first. Well, John, may I sit in Peter's chair, as he is not here? "'Sit in father's chair, John?' Wendy was scandalized. "'Certainly not.' "'He is not really our father,' John answered. "'He didn't even know how a father does till I showed him.' This was grumbling. "'We complain of John,' cried the twins. Tootles held up his hand. He was so much the humblest of them, indeed, he was the only humble one that Wendy was specially gentle with him. "'I don't suppose,' Tootles said diffidently, "'that I could be father?' "'No, Tootles.' Once Tootles began, which was not very often, he had a silly way of going on. "'As I can't be father,' he said heavily, "'I don't suppose, Michael, you would let me be baby?' "'No, I won't,' Michael rapped out. He was already in his basket. "'As I can't be baby,' Tootles said, getting heavier and heavier and heavier, "'do you think I could be a twin?' "'No, indeed,' replied the twins. "'It's awfully difficult to be a twin.' "'As I can't be anything important,' said Tootles, "'would any of you like to see me do a trick?' "'No,' they all replied. Then at last he stopped. I hadn't really any hope, he said. The hateful telling broke out again. Slightly is coughing on the table. The twins began with cheesecakes. Curly is taking both butter and honey. Nibs is speaking with his mouth full. I complain of the twins. I complain of Curly. I complain of Nibs. Oh, dear, oh, dear, cried Wendy. I'm sure I sometimes think that spinsters are to be envied. She told them to clear away and sat down to her work-basket, a heavy load of stockings and every knee with a hole in it, as usual. "'Wendy,' remonstrated Michael, "'I'm too big for a cradle.' "'I must have somebody in a cradle,' she said almost tartly, "'and you are the littlest. A cradle is such a nice homely thing to have about a house.' While she sewed, they played around her. Such a group of happy faces and dancing limbs lit up by that romantic fire. It had become a very familiar scene, this, in the home under the ground. 
but we are looking on it for the last time. There was a step above, and Wendy, you may be sure, was the first to recognize it. Children, I hear your father's step. He likes you to meet him at the door. Above the redskins crouched before Peter. Watch well, braves. I have spoken. And then, as so often before, the gay children dragged him from his tree. As so often before, but never again. He had brought nuts for the boys as well as the correct time for Wendy. Peter, you just spoil them, you know, Wendy simpered. Ah, old lady, said Peter, hanging up his gun. It was me told him mothers are called old lady, Michael whispered to Curly. I complain of Michael, said Curly instantly. The first twin came to Peter. Father, we want to dance. Dance away, my little man, said Peter, who was in high good humor. But we want you to dance. Peter was really the best dancer among them, but he pretended to be scandalized. Me? My old bones would rattle. And Mummy, too. What? cried Wendy. The mother of such an armful dance? But on a Saturday night, slightly insinuated. It was not really Saturday night, at least it may have been, for they had long lost count of the days. But always, if they wanted to do anything special, they said this was Saturday night, and then they did it. Of course it is Saturday night, Peter, Wendy said, relenting. People of our figure, Wendy. But it is only among our own progeny. True, true. So they were told they could dance, but they must put on their nighties first. Ah, old lady, Peter said aside to Wendy, warming himself by the fire and looking down at her as she sat turning a heel. There is nothing more pleasant of an evening for you and me when the day's toil is over than to rest by the fire with the little ones nearby. It is sweet, Peter, isn't it? Wendy said, frightfully gratified. Peter, I think Curly has your nose. Michael takes after you. She went to him and put her hand on his shoulder. Dear Peter, she said, with such a large family, of course, I have now passed my best. But you don't want to change me, do you? No, Wendy. Certainly he did not want to change. But he looked at her uncomfortably, blinking, you know, like one not sure whether he was awake or asleep. Peter, what is it? I was just thinking, he said, a little scared. It is only make-believe, isn't it, that I am their father? Oh, yes, Wendy said primly. You see, he continued apologetically, it would make me seem so old to be their real father. But they are ours, Peter, yours and mine. But not really, Wendy? he asked anxiously. Not if you don't wish it, she replied, and she distinctly heard his sigh of relief. Peter, she asked, trying to speak firmly, what are your exact feelings to me? Those of a devoted son, Wendy. I thought so, she said, and went and sat by herself at the extreme end of the room. You are so queer, he said, frankly puzzled. And Tiger Lily is just the same. There is something she wants to be to me, but she says it is not my mother. No, indeed it is not, Wendy replied with frightful emphasis. Now we know why she was prejudiced against the Redskins. Then what is it? It isn't for a lady to tell. Oh, very well. Peter said, a little nettled. Perhaps Tinkerbell will tell me. Oh, yes, Tinkerbell will tell you, Wendy retorted scornfully. She is an abandoned little creature. Here Tink, who was in her bedroom eavesdropping, squeaked out something impudent. She says she glories in being abandoned, Peter interpreted. He had a sudden idea. Perhaps Tink wants to be my mother. You silly ass!" cried Tinkerbell in a passion. 
She had said it so often that Wendy needed no translation. I almost agree with her, Wendy snapped. Fancy Wendy snapping! But she had been much tried, and she little knew what was to happen before the night was out. If she had known, she would not have snapped. None of them knew. Perhaps it was best not to know. Their ignorance gave them one more glad hour, and, as it was to be their last night on the island, let us rejoice that there were sixty glad minutes in it. They sang and danced in their nightgowns. Such a deliciously creepy song it was, in which they pretended to be frightened at their own shadows, little witting that so soon shadows would close in upon them from whom they would shrink in real fear. So uproariously gay was the dance, and how they buffeted each other on the bed and out of it. It was a pillow fight rather than a dance, and when it was finished the pillows insisted on one bout more, like partners who know that they may never meet again. The stories they told before it was time for Wendy's good-night story. Even Slightly tried to tell a story that night. But the beginning was so fearfully dull that it appalled not only the others but himself, and he said gloomily, "'Yes, it is a dull beginning. I say, let us pretend that it is the end.' And then at last they all got into bed for Wendy's story, the story they loved best, the story Peter hated. Usually when she began to tell this story he left the room, or put his hands over his ears, and possibly if he had done either of those things this time they might all still be on the island. But tonight he remained on his stool, and we shall see what happened. End of chapter 10When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.